about this before. In fact, I hadn't thought a lot about the Apostles' Creed until I began to study it. Now, for those of you who have not been here for the first six sermons on the Apostles' Creed, what we are doing is going back. We are discovering what the early church believed as they, as they looked at the body of Scripture and pulled out those essential truths. They were doing a couple of things. They were trying to get believers all over the world to affirm some basic tenets of Scripture, basic doctrines of Scripture. But they were also trying to fight against the inevitable error, for example, the error of Gnosticism that was rampant in those days. And so they wrote down this body of truth. The Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. It's only a guide to lead us into those important truths. And so as I began to study, I I, I looked at this phrase, at this particular section, and what struck me was the fact that in the entire Apostles' Creed, there are only two people mentioned. And look at the two people who are mentioned. The first doesn't come as any surprise. We've talked about her for the last couple of weeks, Mary. We talked about the, the Holy Spirit conception and the virgin birth as being absolutely unique, absolutely the centerpiece of Christology. That's just a word that means words about Christ, the study of Christ. And as we came up to Christmas, we discovered how that this all fit together. So why would the creed, again, a reminder, written by men, pass immediately from the virgin birth to the suffering and the death of Jesus, now get this, with no mention of anything in between. That kind of struck me as being a little bit odd. Not a word about his wonderful teaching. Not a word about his miracles And then it began to dawn on me that the thing that the framers, the writers of the Apostles' Creed wanted us to get was this reality, that Jesus Christ was born to die. We'll talk about that more obviously today, but also next week as well. But but here's the other question. We understand why Mary's name would be included But why would Pilate's name also be listed? Wasn't wasn't Pontius Pilate the man who killed Jesus? And so some people find it surprising that his name is mentioned at all, and some people find it downright offensive. Let's look at one of the quotes in your worship guide, the last one by John Piper. And then look at some scripture to go along with that, some of that we just read. The most important thing, I I think this this is stunning as we enter into this new year. The most important question of the 21st century is, why did Jesus Christ suffer so much? But we will never see this importance if we fail to go beyond human cause. The ultimate answer to the question Who crucified Jesus is God did. 
God did. It is a staggering thought. Jesus was his son, and the suffering was unsurpassed. But the whole message of the Bible leads us to this conclusion. We just read it a few moments ago. I'll put it up on the screen to remind it, remind us of, of the reality of what John Piper just said. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. But how does this truth, this incredible truth, this, as I said a few moments ago, this stunning truth of divine sovereignty relate to the horribly sinful actions of the people who killed Jesus? And again, the scriptures are not silent on this. It puts together divine sovereignty and human responsibility in a couple of places. Look at the preaching of the Apostle Peter. Right out of the chute, he got it. You know, sometimes it was, a, it was a real question as to whether or not the disciples were going to catch all of this. But I find it interesting, and again, I'll use this word, stunning, that right out of the chute, the first sermon that the Apostle Peter preaches, he says this, this Jesus delivered up, now watch how he combines divine sovereignty with human responsibility, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, speaking to his Jewish audience, and killed by the hands of lawless men. And by the way, the early church got it. Because just a couple of chapters later, you you remember this particular incident in the life of the early church. They're brand new baby Christians, and they're starting to undergo suffering and persecution. And yet in their prayer, they got together and they had this prayer meeting. And here's what they said in their prayer. Again, I find this so incredible that these baby Christians got the reality, the combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Here he is, Pontius Pilate, the leader of the Jews, the leader of the Gentiles in that part of the world, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Here's divine sovereignty to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. The Bible never shies away from the truth, and I'll add another word, the mystery of how God is at work. Not only way back then, but even today in the worst, in the most sinful of human acts. In fact, verses like these two that I just shared with you give me personally incredible hope. God really does have a plan to use wicked men in his economy. God planned it, but it was through these men that great good has come to the world. Now, let's not forget that Jesus was never passive in his suffering. He was actively involved. Don't get the idea 
that, that he just let people do this. Look, look what he said. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. There's another throne thing thrown into the mix. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So it all works together. To paraphrase the words of Joseph way back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he said, look, what you did, he's speaking to his brothers, but he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then we make the jump all the way to Romans eight twenty-eight that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But here's what, here's what I struggled with this last week. I don't know, have you, have you ever done a study like this and you struggle with certain concepts? Certain concepts that we've covered? And somehow it, it, it moves from the academic to the heart. And, and I, I don't know about you. I don't know if, if this study or other studies that you have done, that they impact you like this. But how do you wrap your head around Jesus being fully God and fully man at the same time? How do you do that? How do you explain it to someone who really wants to know? How do you explain the concept, which is all through the Apostles' Creed, of the Trinity? And I, I've had a lot of questions from Muslim friends and people that I've talked with in other places in the world. How, how do you Christians believe that? It sounds to me like you believe in three gods and we say, no, no, no. We believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the thing that I have been wrestling with, now you might think that as a pastor I've got all these things figured out. I do not. I posted it as a question right there in your, in your outline, Okay. Why did Jesus Christ have to suffer so badly? But there was a deeper question for me. Why did God put suffering in the world in the first place? And I've been wrestling with that. Now, this sermon is not going to morph into a message about your suffering. We've had other sermons on that. And we will have other sermons. What the Apostles' Creed does and what we want to look at in Scripture, and we've just seen this in Isaiah chapter 53, is the reality of why it was absolutely necessary for Jesus Christ to suffer so much. You see, the creed is very specific. I started studying and I looked at all of the ways that Jesus suffered during his life here on earth, and I realized that's not what the creed is talking about. It's specifically pointing to a time when Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Here's something else I thought about. It's noteworthy. 
that, and I've looked for it in Scripture. It's noteworthy, at least to me, to, to see in Scripture that it's never recorded that Jesus laughed or even smiled. Okay, now, I'm just throwing this out to you. Do you think that he did laugh? Well, okay, good. Yeah, see, for those of you visiting, this is interactive preaching, at least at some point. I know I get to talk most, but I do want you to think with me about this. Do you think Jesus ever smiled? Yes, I do. Do you think Jesus ever laughed? Somehow, you know, and, and the pendulum swings. I, I know that some years ago there were a couple of things that were written about Jesus being, you know, one who belly laughed a lot and, and, and joked around with his apostles. There are some things where he plays on words sometimes. I, I don't know about that. I don't know if Jesus told a good joke. He could have. But I do believe that we, we err sometimes when we say, oh, no, 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 he never smiled. He never laughed. Because that is something that God has planted in us, and as long as it's appropriate, I, I would rather see, and I've been, I've been looking this morning so far, and uh, I, I've seen some smiles out there from time to time. A little bit of laughter. That is a good thing. But, but here is what we need to focus on today. While I believe that, the Bible never says it, but the thrust of of his life, even though he laughed, I believe, and he smiled, the thrust of his life was that of a suffering servant. Go back to what we read a few moments ago. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and that suffering came to a head under a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. I don't understand, as I said a few moments ago, all of the reasons, but I do know that it is a gospel necessity that Christ had to suffer. Okay, I just, want to, I just want to lay down this for you. It was a gospel necessity. I can't, just like in certain teachings, like I mentioned a minute ago, the Jesus being the God-man, the Trinity, Divine election is one of those things. There, there's a veil. And try as we may to understand, and theologians have, have, have gone back and forth on these things for years and years and years, but there is a veil behind which we cannot go, but it is revealed that he had to suffer. I want you to, to, to look at certain words in the next couple of verses, like the word must and necessary, the Son of Man. These, these are Jesus' words. Now, do you know what the context is of this? This was that great moment where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and they said a couple of things, and then Peter said, we know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And right after that wonderful declaration, Jesus tells them right up front, this is why I came, guys. The Son of Man must suffer. 
many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. It was the theme of the Old Testament prophets that carried over into the teaching of the New Testament apostles. Here, again, the words of Jesus. Remember the road to Emmaus. And he says these words. He said to them, the, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And what did they speak specifically? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And we jump over into the New Testament and we find the exact same thing. The preaching of Paul, this was after, this, this was a while after the, the, the new church had its beginnings. Paul had a custom. He would go into a town, he would look for a synagogue, maybe a riverside, he would go down and start talking to the Jews. And he would explain and prove well, this is interesting. Of all the things that he could do from the scriptures, he would explain why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Must suffer. Necessary. This is God's plan for the salvation of the world. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 22. Um, we're going to get to some of the reasons behind it, 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 the necessity in just a second. But I just want, want to read to you another uh, messianic psalm, Psalm 22. And uh, we'll read verses 14 through 18. I'll go back to verse 1 and just read that first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is this about? Is this about Israel? This is about none other than Jesus, the one who was to come, the suffering servant. And you pick it up with verse 14. Now, some might say that, well, in that verse 1, Jesus had already read the psalm, and so he could go back and he could repeat what the psalmist said. But listen to how exact the prophecies of his suffering were. And this is just exemplary of others. He said, I am poured out like water in verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. By the way, none of his bones were broken, but they were out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. How else did the water and the blood come out his side? Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. I guess you think stunning is my favorite word. I, I, awesome. Stun, I, you know, what else can I use? Jesus might have been able to steal the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he could not make Roman soldiers cast lots for and divide his garments. 
Now, in order for this prophecy, get this, in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled and others like it, Jesus had to suffer physically, emotionally, most of all, spiritually. But why did Jesus have to suffer so badly? Here is at least, I, I think we, we see this from the plan of Scripture from the very beginning. The principle of the innocent dying for the guilty. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve received the skin of an animal that had been sacrificed, slaughtered, so that their shame, their guilt, could be covered. Blood was shed in Eden. Later on, this principle was laid out in the Mosaic Law. It is the blood, I won't read all of it, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's sin. It says in Leviticus 17, and the writer of Hebrews, who's all over Leviticus, comes in and says these stunning words. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to suffer because suffering is a part of sacrifice. And because Jesus was the Lamb of God, and He is, takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus' physical, emotional, spiritual torture was part of the payment required for our sins. It was the payment. We are ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or spot. Does everybody agree with that? No, I, I mean everybody. I, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm preaching to the choir. Okay. I know all of you agree with what I've just said, but does everybody agree with the necessity of suffering? The shedding of blood for suffering? What does the world around you, I'm talking about people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, what do they think of your religion and mind that says it is necessary. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. It is a it's a stumbling block. It is foolishness. The Jews ought to have seen it. That was Paul's argument early in Romans. They should have seen it. It was a stumbling block to them. How could they crucify the Lord of glory? It's foolishness to Gentiles, to Greeks, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wow. So in answer to the first question on your outline, why did Jesus Christ have to suffer so badly? I've given you just, just a smattering. I, I hope that you will study this for yourself, at least at some point, to begin to plumb the depths. 
in a 30, 35, 40? How long do I preach normally? 45? I heard that. Minute sermon? How do, how do you plumb the depths of that? But I, I've given you what I believe that the writers of the Apostles' Creed going to Scripture that Jesus Christ conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, suffered specifically under a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. So why did they go there with this? Who was Pontius Pilate? Let me give you just a little bit of background. Jan and I were talking about this on the way, and she asked, she asked this question today. She said, do you think Pontius Pilate was a good man? What do you guys think? I said, well, he was probably at least as good as us. Why single him out? Weren't there other villains in the story? What about Caiaphas? Man. He seemed determined. Where Pilate was a little bit wishy-washy. I mean, he's just weak. Caiaphas was determined. You talk about wicked. Why not Caiaphas? Why not, why not Judas, the traitor of traitors? Why not the Roman soldiers who were so incredibly cruel? Why not the mob? But just as Hitler is known as the man who killed six million Jews, Pilate's name goes down in history as the man who killed Jesus. A couple of things about Pilate. We glean these from Scripture. Primarily, he's mentioned in, in secular writings too, but we know him mostly from Scripture. He was the governor of Judea. If you go back in the Christmas story, Luke chapter 3, verse 1, where John the Baptist is getting his start, he's mentioned by name. We also know that he was thoroughly pagan, at least at this point. Now, there are legends. Legends are just things that come along later, that he actually became a Christian, was converted, all the rest of that. But from what we know in Scripture, he was thoroughly pagan, and he was cruel. He was brutal as a leader. How do we know from Scripture? The backstory is not completely clear. But in Luke chapter 13, it's an interesting read where Jesus is making a point about repentance. And he's saying, do you suppose that the men whose blood Pilate mingled with the sacrifice, do you think those men were worse than you? And, and he goes on to say, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he gives two illustrations right out of the, the, the headlines of those days. Pilate was known, and again, we don't know all of the details about this. This could have been what set him up as an enemy of Herod. But there were people worshiping, Jewish men who were worshiping, and for whatever reason, Pilate went in, and as they were slaughtering the sacrifices... This was holy, folks. To the Jewish people, these were holy things. Making the sacrifice, and Pilate goes in and slaughters those worshipers in the middle of the worship service.
mingle their blood with the sacrifices. I, I was thinking this morning, what might that look like? It might look like that while we're singing, the, the writer to Hebrews says that, that we, by, by singing, we're offering praise to God, you know? What if in the middle of our singing of praises to God, the authorities burst in through the back doors and slaughtered all of the worshipers here? That's a picture of what Pilate did. So we know that he was a brutal, he was cruel, he was thoroughly pagan. We also know that he was married and true to form. His wife had a lot more sense than he did. This is kind of strange, but it's from Scripture. So somehow she had this dream, and in the dream she dreamed about Jesus. And it said she was tormented in the dream because of this righteous man. And she sent word to him and said, Have nothing to do with this righteous man. Again, she had more sense than he did. He didn't follow his wife's advice this could this could be one of the biggest character faults that he had he was motivated by a desire to please people and save his own skin rather than do what was right let me give you three reasons that that's just a, an overview of who Pilate was so we've got a setup now why was he included i i think there are three things let me just mention them very quickly the first is historical. That may not sound very exciting, but remember why the Apostles' Creed primarily was written. It was written in a day and time when Gnosticism, this, this mystery religion, was rampant, and all kinds of beliefs came out of it, and they exist even to today. That Jesus, for example, Jesus, Jesus really wasn't crucified, he was delivered. He never went to the cross. There's a reason why suffering under Pontius Pilate is vitally important. It's because it, that event is rooted in, it's anchored to history. We're dealing with an actual event. A very public event. The trial and the execution of Jesus. It actually happened in history. The Bible is not a fairy tale. How does a fairy tale begin? Once upon a time. Or long, long ago. In a galaxy far away. And we have fun with the, those are stories, those are myths, those are fables, and they're, they're fun and they're entertaining, and sometimes they teach truths. The writers of the creed wanted us to know that what we believe about Jesus' suffering and death for our sins is anchored in history. Christianity is a down-to-earth religion. None of this pipe dream stuff that people accuse us of. There's a reality to it that God in Jesus Christ literally entered into history in order to meet us 
where we need him and to redeem us. It's not some abstract teaching. It's about God acting in history. And by the way, he is continuing to act in history. It didn't end with Acts chapter 28. So that's one thing you can add to your apologetic repertoire, people. It is impossible for anyone, either then or now, to deny that these things actually happen. Second thing, Pilate is important for another reason. He represents the rejection of Jesus Christ by this world. It's a major theme in the New Testament. Some people have said that the New Testament depiction of the rejection of Jesus is anti Semitic. But if you read carefully the events, it will show that the, the, the people of Israel as a people were not guilty of crucifying Jesus. There were leaders who stirred up a mob and they were guilty. But who has the greater guilt? I think it's a guy by the name of Pilate. In the exchange in the Gospel of John, Pilate kind of, I, I don't know what his posture was, but he was asking and he was amazed. All the Gospels say he was amazed that Jesus did not answer back on the charges that were brought against him. Now, he, he did respond, are you a king? He simply said, you're saying it. Or are you saying it? Or is someone else putting that into your mind? But at one point, Pilate says these words, Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? It wasn't a boast, people. It was a statement of sober fact. Is the Roman governor of Judea only... He could give the death sentence and crucify a man. Now, it's true that the Jewish leaders wanted him dead, but Pilate is the one who is held responsible for the death of Jesus. I, I, I read a guy put it like this this last week as I was studying. If the Jewish leaders loaded the gun, it was Pilate who pulled the trigger. Oh my. Then there's a third reason, and we end with this, and this is where we bring it. This has been information, and it's good information from the Scriptures. But now, let's begin to apply it. Okay? Third reason why I think Pilate is in there. There are positive examples from Scripture that we need to try to be like, to emulate, and there are negative examples from Scripture. Proverbs is filled with negative examples of people, right? In the New Testament, we find multiple examples. For example, there are foolish servants who didn't use what their master had given them. There were foolish bridesmaids who didn't prepare. Just go get some oil. Prepare for the coming of the bridegroom. There are foolish builders. Can you imagine how foolish it would be for a builder to build on shifting sand and not on the rock? 
but there were those. And then Jesus. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Two words. Jesus wept. What's the second shortest verse in the Bible? Very instructive. Jesus actually said these words. Remember Lot's wife. Hmm. If you've set your hand to the plow, if you've, if you've said, I'm following Jesus, don't turn back. And with a negative example, when he looked at his disciples whom he loved, and he said, I'm going to tell you who not to be like. Don't be like Lot's wife. Remember her as a negative example. So folks, Pilate is a person that you do not want to follow. How many people do we find in Scripture that name their kids Pontius Pilate? There's a website that sells, well, there are lots of websites that sell motivational posters. You ever walked into an office and they've got all these motivational posters, shoot for the stars, and all the rest of that kind of thing. Well, there's a wonderful website. I've never ordered a poster, but I'm really tempted to, and it's called Demotivational Posters. It is absolutely hilarious because so many of them are true, but I found this one that really kind of speaks to what we're talking about. Here's a ship that's sunk or half-sinking, I don't know if you can read it. I'll read it for you. Mistakes. Boy, did Pilate make a big one. And then the caption for that is, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning for others. Please, don't be like Pilate. He had truth standing right in front of him. And he comes off with this squirrely phrase, what is truth? He had the king of kings standing right in front of him, and he didn't bow before him. Pilate, like so many of us, was weak, fearful, lacking courage, allowing others to pressure him into making really bad decisions. And the worst is what he did, rejecting Jesus, and then try to worm out of it shift responsibility washing his hands I don't go to church because my parents made me I don't follow Jesus because I knew a Christian one time who failed you can always find and point to things just like Pilate did but today, this is the application from Pilate as an example that you do not want to follow. The truth is standing in front 
of you. And his name is Jesus. And the king of kings is standing in front of you. And his name is Jesus. And he says to you, turn away from your sin. What is sin? It's playing like you're God. I'll run my own life. And it's fighting God. And he says, turn away from that and turn to the sacrifice. This next week, we're going to be talking more about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trust in him as your Savior and Lord. Ultimately, we know that it was the Father who crushed his son. We know that Pilate was the person directly responsible for that. But there's just one more, and I, and I, I add this so that we can all know it. I, do you remember a movie? It's years ago, The Passion of the Christ. Okay. Mixed reviews, mixed feelings about the movie. Okay. But did you know that Mel Gibson is in the movie? couple of places but one of the most notable places where he is in the movie his face is never shown is when Jesus hand is on the cross and the hand holding the spike is Mel Gibson's and he said later on I'm not giving any kind of a judgment one way or the other about Mel Gibson's spiritual life but I was struck by this he said, I wanted my hand to be in that scene so that I could make a statement that I'm the one who put Jesus on the cross. I'm the one. Paul reminds us, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Father, I thank you for the reality of the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. I, I thank you that while the Bible is all we need, and it is our only rule for faith and practice, that there are people of wisdom who along the way have helped us to see what are the important things that we need to focus on. What are the essentials? So I am grateful, Lord, for those who framed the Apostles' Creed. I'm grateful that it summarizes and reminds us of what God through Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and what the Holy Spirit is still doing in us individually and as a church. So, Father, as we now sing this final song, I pray that you would quicken the hearts of those who do not know you, and today would be the day of salvation. I pray for those of us who do know you, that we would come away with a greater appreciation for all that Christ suffered for us. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand?